Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain. Volume 11, Book 3, Chapter 1, Part 1, Magnetic North. Once again, classes were beginning at the university. The pleasant fall winds played in the yellowing leaves of the poplars in front of the college dormitories, and many young men came out of the subways and walked earnestly and rapidly about the campus with little blue catalogs of courses under their arms, and their hearts warm with the desire to buy books. But now in this season of new beginnings, I really had something new to begin. A year ago, the conviction had developed in my mind that the one who was going to give me the best advice about where and how to become a priest was Dan Walsh. I had come to this conclusion before I had ever met him or sat and listened to his happy and ingenuous lectures on St. Thomas. But on this September day in 1939, the conviction was to bear its fruit. Dan was not on the Columbia campus that day. I went into one of the phone booths at Livingston Hall and called him up. He was a man with rich friends and that night he had been invited to dinner with some people on Park Avenue, although there was certainly nothing of Park Avenue about him and his simplicity. But we arranged to meet downtown, and at about 10 o'clock that evening, I was standing in the lobby of one of those big, shiny, stuffy apartments waiting for him to come down out of an elevator. As soon as we walked down into the cool night, Dan turned to me and said, You know, the first time I met you, I thought you had a vocation to the priesthood. I was astonished and ashamed. Did I really give that impression? It made me feel like a whited sepulcher, considering what I knew was inside me. On the whole, perhaps, it would have been more reassuring if he had been surprised. He was not surprised. He was very pleased. And he was glad to talk about my vocation, and about the priesthood, and about religious orders. They were things to which he had given a certain amount of thought, and on the whole I think that my selection of an advisor was a very happy one. It was a good inspiration, and in fact... It was to turn out much better than I realized at first. The quietest place we could think of in the neighborhood was the men's bar at the Biltmore, a big room full of comfortable chairs, hushed and paneled and half-empty. We sat down in one of the far corners, and it was there, two being gathered together in his name and in his charity, that Christ impressed the first definite form and direction upon my vocation. It was very simply done. We just talked about several different religious orders, and Dan suggested various priests I might consult, and finally promised to give me a note of introduction to one of them. I had read a little here and there about the Jesuits, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Benedictines, leafing through the Catholic Encyclopedia and the Reference Library in South Hall and shopping around in the stacks. I had put my nose into the rule of St. Benedict and not derived much benefit from so cursory an acquaintance, all I remembered was that the saint seemed a little vexed at the fact that the monks of his day could not be persuaded to go without wine. I had looked into a little French book about the Dominicans, and there I met with a piece of information that gave me pause. It said that they all slept together in a common dormitory, and I thought, who wants to sleep in a common dormitory? The picture in my mind was that of the long, cold, green upstairs room at the Lycée, with row after row of iron beds and a lot of skinny people in nightshirts. I spoke to Dan Walsh about the Jesuits, and he said he did not know any Jesuits. And for my part, the mere fact that he did not seem to have any particular reaction, positive or negative, to that order, did away with the weak and vague preference which I had hitherto given it in my own mind. 
I had instinctively turned that way first of all because I had read the life of Gerard Manley Hopkins and studied his poems, but there had never been any real attention calling me to that kind of a life. It was geared to a pitch of active intensity and military routine, which were alien to my own needs. I doubt if they would have kept me in their novitiate, but if they had, they would probably have found me a great misfit. What I needed was the solitude to expand in breadth and depth, and to be simplified out under the gaze of God, more or less the way a plant spreads out its leaves in the sun. That meant that I needed a rule that was almost entirely aimed at detaching me from the world and uniting me from God, not a rule made to fit me to fight for God in the world. But I did not find out all that in one day. Dan spoke of the Benedictines. In itself, the vocation attracted me, a liturgical life in some big abbey in the depths of the country, but in actual fact it might just mean being nailed down to a desk in an expensive prep school in New Hampshire for the rest of my life, or worse still, being a parish priest remotely attached to such a prep school and living in more or less permanent separation from the claustral and liturgical center which had first attracted me. What do you think of the Franciscans? Dan asked. As soon as I mentioned St. Bonaventure's, it turned out that he had many friends there and knew the place fairly well. In fact, they had given him some sort of an honorary degree there that summer. Yes, I like the Franciscans. Their life was very simple and informal, and the atmosphere of St. Bonaventure's was pleasant and happy and peaceful. One thing that attracted me to them was a sort of freedom from spiritual restraint, from systems and routine. No matter how much the original rule of St. Francis has changed, I think his spirit and his inspiration are still the fundamental thing in Franciscan life. And it is an inspiration rooted in joy, because it's guided by the prudence and wisdom which are revealed only to the little ones, the glad wisdom of those who have had the grace and madness to throw away everything in one uncompromising rush, and to walk around barefoot in the simple confidence that if they get into trouble, God will come and get them out of it again. This is not something that's confined to the Franciscan. It is at the heart of every religious vocation. And if it is not, the vocation does not mean that much. But the Franciscans, or at least St. Francis, reduced it to its logical limits. At the same time, invested it with a kind of simple 13th century lyricism that made it doubly attractive to me. However, the lyricism must be carefully distinguished from the real substance of the Franciscan vocation, which is that tremendous and heroic poverty, poverty of body and spirit, which makes the friar literally a tramp. For after all, mendicant is only a fancy word for tramp, and if a Franciscan cannot be a tramp in this full and complete and total mystical sense, he is bound to be a little unhappy and dissatisfied. As soon as he acquires a lot of special articles for his use and comfort and becomes sedate and respectable and spiritually sedentary, he will no doubt have an easy and pleasant time. But there will always be gnawing at his heart the nostalgia for that uncompromising destitution which alone can give him joy because it flings him headlong into the arms of God. Without poverty, Franciscan lyricism sounds tinny and sentimental and raw and false. Its tone is sour, and all its harmonies are somewhat strained. I'm afraid that at that time, it was the lyricism that attracted me more than the poverty. But really, I don't think I was in a position to know any better. It was too soon for me to be able to make the distinction. 
However, I remember admitting that one of the advantages of their rule, as far as I was concerned, that it was easy. After all, I was really rather frightened of all religious rules as a whole, and this new step into the monastery was not something that presented itself to me all at once as something that I would just take in my stride. On the contrary, my mind was full of misgivings about fasting and enclosure and all the long prayers and community life and monastic obedience and poverty. And there were plenty of strange specters dancing about in the doors of my imagination, all ready to come in if I would let them. And if I did, they would show me how I would go insane in a monastery and how my health would crack up and my heart would give out and I would collapse and go to pieces and be cast back into the world a hopeless moral and physical wreck. All this, of course, was based on the assumption that I was in weak health, for that was something I still believed. Perhaps it was to some extent true, I don't know, but the fear of collapse had done nothing in the past years to prevent me from staying up all night and wandering around the city in search of very unhealthy entertainments. Nonetheless, as soon as there was question of a little fasting or going without a meal or living within the walls of a monastery, I instantly began to fear death. What I eventually found out was that as soon as I started to fast and deny myself pleasures and devote time to prayer and meditation and to the various exercises that belong to the religious life, I quickly got over all my bad health and became sound and strong and immensely happy. That particular night, I was convinced that I could not follow anything but the easiest of religious rules. When Dan began to talk about the one religious order that filled him with the most enthusiasm, I was able to share his admiration, but I had no desire to join it. It was the order of the Cistercians, the Cistercians of the Strict Observance. The very title made me shiver, and so did their commoner name, the Trappists. Once, six years before, and it seemed much longer than that, when I had barely glanced at the walls of the Trappist monastery at Trefontaine outside Rome, the fancy of becoming a Trappist had entered my adolescent mind, but if it had been anything but a pure daydream, it would not have got inside my head at all. Now, when I was actually and seriously thinking of entering a monastery, the very idea of the Trappists almost reduced me to a jelly. Last summer, Dan said, I made a retreat to a Trappist monastery in Kentucky. It's called Our Lady of Gethsemane. Ever hear of it? And he began to tell me about the place, how he had been staying with some friends and they had driven him over to the monastery. It was the first time they had ever been there. Although they lived in Kentucky, they hardly knew the Trappist existed. His hostess had been very piqued at the signs about women keeping out of the enclosure under pain of excommunication and she had watched with awe as the heavy door closed upon him, engulfing him in that terrible silent building. From where I sit and write at this moment, I look out the window across the quiet guesthouse garden with the four banana trees and the big red and yellow flowers around Our Lady's statue. I can see the door where Dan entered and where I entered. Beyond the porter's lodge is a low green hill where there was wheat this summer. And out there yonder, I can hear the racket of the diesel tractor. I don't know what it's plowing. Dan had shared in the Trappist Monastery a week. He told me of the life of the monks. He told me of their silence. He said that they never conversed. And the impression I got was that they never spoke at all to anybody. Don't they even go to confession, I asked? Of course, they can talk to the abbot. The retreat master talked to the guests. 
He was Father James. He said that it was a good thing that the monks didn't have to talk. With all the mixture of men that they have there, they get along better without it. Lawyers and farmers and soldiers and schoolboys, they all live together and go everywhere together and do everything together. They stand in choir together, go out to work together, sit together in the same place when they're ready and study. It's a good thing they don't talk. Oh, so they sing in the choir? Sure, said Dan. They sing the canonical hours and high mass. They're in choir several hours a day. I was relieved to think that the monks got to choir and exercise their vocal cords. I was afraid that so much silence would wither them altogether. And they work in the fields, said Dan. They have to make their own living by farming and raising stock. They grow most of what they eat, bake their own bread, and make their own shoes. I suppose they fast a lot, I said. Oh, yes. They fast more than half the year, and they never eat meat or fish unless they get sick. They don't even have eggs. They just live on vegetables and cheese and things like that. They gave me a cheese when I was there, and I took it back to my friend's house. When we got there, they handed it to the colored butler, and they said to him, You know what that is? That's monk's cheese. He couldn't figure it out, and he looked at it for a while and then got an idea. So he looked up with a big smile and said, Oh, I know what you all mean. Monks. Them's like goats. But I was thinking all about the fasting. The life took my breath away but did not attract me. It sounded cold and terrible. The monastery now existed in my mind as a big gray prison with barrel windows filled with dour and emaciated characters with their hoods pulled down over their faces. They're very healthy, said Dan, and they are big, strong men. Some of them are giants. Since I came to the monastery, I have tried to pick out Dan's giants. I can account for one or two easily enough, but I think he must have seen the rest of them in the dark, or perhaps they are to be explained by the fact that Dan himself is not very tall. I sat in silence. In my heart, there was a kind of mixture of exhilaration and dejection. Exhilaration at the thought of such generosity and depression because it seemed such a drastic and cruel and excessive rejection of the rights of nature. Dan said, You think you'd like that kind of a life? Oh no, I said. Not a chance. Not for me. I'd never be able to stand it. It would kill me in a week. Besides, I have to have meat. I can't get along without meat. I need it for my health. Well, said Dan, it's a good thing you know yourself so well then. For a moment it occurred to me that he was being ironical, but there was not a shadow of irony in his voice. There never was. He was far too good and too kind and too simple for irony. He thought I knew what I was talking about and took my word for it. And so the conclusion of that evening was that I decided to go and see the Franciscans. And after all, we both agreed that they seemed to be the best for me. So he gave me a note to his friend Father Edmund at the monastery of St. Francis of Assisi, on 31st Street. Part 2 The Franciscan Monastery on 31st Street, New York, is a gray, unprepossessing place, crowded in among the big buildings and inhabited by very busy priests. Not the least busy of them in those days was Father Edmund, Dan Walsh's friend. And yet he was not too busy to talk to me practically any time I came around to see him. He was a big, amiable man, full of Franciscan cheerfulness, kind, disciplined by hard work, yet not hardened by it, for his priesthood, which kept him close to Christ and to souls, 
more than softened and humanized him. From the first moment I met him, I knew I had a good friend in Father Edmund. He questioned me about my vocation, asking me how long it was since my baptism and what it was that attracted me to the Franciscans and what I was doing at Columbia. And when I had talked to him for a while, he began to encourage me in the idea of becoming a friar. I don't see any reason why you shouldn't eventually make applications to enter the novitiate next August, he said. Next August? That was a long way off. Now that my mind was made up, I was impatient to get started. However, I had not expected to be admitted immediately to any order, but I asked him, Father, isn't there some chance of my entering sooner? We admit all our novitiates together in a group. They start out at Patterson in August, then they go together all the way through until ordination. That's the only way we can handle them. If you entered any other time, you would miss out all along the line. Have you had much philosophy? I told him of Dan Walsh's courses, and he thought for a few moments. Perhaps there might be a chance of starting you out in the novitiate in February, he said, but he did not seem to be very hopeful. No doubt what he was thinking of was that I might skip a half year of philosophy and so catch up with the others at the House of Studies upstate, where they would be sent after the year's novitiate. Are you living with your parents? he asked me. I told him they had been long dead and that none of my family was left except for an uncle and a brother. Is your brother Catholic too? No, father. Where is he? What does he do? He goes to Cornell. He's supposed to get out of there next June. Well, what about yourself? Have you got enough to live on? You aren't starving or anything, are you? Oh, no, father. I can get along. I've got a chance of a job teaching English and extension at Columbia this year. And besides, they gave me a grant and aid to pay for my courses for the doctorate. You take that job. That will do you a lot of good. And get busy on that doctorate, too. Do all the work you can, and study a little philosophy. Study won't hurt you at all. After all, you know, if you come into the order, you'll probably end up teaching at St. Bona's or Siena. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Oh, sure, I said, and that was the truth. I walked down the steps of the monastery into the noisy street with my heart full of happiness and peace. What a transformation this made in my life. Now at last, God had become the center of my existence, and it had taken no less than his decision to make him so. Apparently, in my case, it had to be that way. I was still without any formal spiritual direction, but I went frequently to confession, especially at St. Francis's church where the friars were more inclined to give me advice than secular priests had been. And it was in one of the confessionals of St. Francis's that a good priest one day told me very insistently, Go to communion every day, every day. By that time, I had already become a daily communicant, but his words comforted and strengthened me and his emphasis made me glad, and indeed I had reason to be, for it was those daily communions that were transforming my life almost visibly from day to day. I did not realize any of this on those beautiful mornings. I scarcely was aware that I was so happy. It took someone else to draw my attention to it. I was coming down 7th Avenue one morning. It must have been in December or January. I had just come from the little church of Our Lady of Guadalupe, or from Communion, and was going to get some breakfast at a lunch wagon near Lowe's Sheridan Theater. I don't know what I was thinking of, but as I was walking along, I nearly bumped into Mark, who was on his way to the subway, going to Columbia for his morning classes. Where are you going? he asked. 
The question surprised me as there did not seem to be any reason to ask where I was going and all I could answer was, to breakfast? Later on, Mark referred again to the meeting and said, What made you look so happy on that street there? So that was what had impressed him, and that was why he had asked me where I was going. It was not where I was going that made me happy, but where I was coming from. Yet, as I say, this surprised me, too, because I had not really paid any attention to the fact that I was happy, which indeed I was. Now every day began with Mass and Communion, either at Our Lady of Guadalupe or St. Francis of Assisi Church. After that, I went back to Perry Street and got to work rewriting the novel, which had been handed back to me politely by one of those tall, thin, anxious young men with horn-rimmed glasses who are to be found in the offices of publishers. He had asked me if I was trying to write in some new experimental style, and then ducked behind his desk as if I might pull a knife on him for his impertinence. About twelve, I would go and get a sandwich at some drugstore, and read in the paper about the Russians and the Finns, or about the French, sitting in the Maginot line and sending out a party of six men somewhere in Lorraine to fire three rifle shots at an imaginary German. In the afternoon, I usually had to go to Columbia and sit in a room and hear some lecture in English literature, after which I went to the library and read St. Thomas's commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, which I had reserved for me on my desk in the graduate reading room. This was a matter of great consternation to some sisters of St. Joseph who occupied nearby desks and who, after a while, became timidly friendly when they learned that I was going to become a Franciscan in the summer. At about three in the afternoon, I was in the habit of going to Corpus Christi, or to Our Lady of Lourdes, which was even closer, and doing the Stations of the Cross. This meditative and easy prayer provided me with another way, more valuable than I realized, of entering into participation in the merits of Christ's passion, and of renewing within me the life that had been set alight by that morning's communion. In those days, it took a little effort to walk to a church and go around the 14th station saying vocal prayers for I was still not used to praying. Therefore, doing the Stations of the Cross was still more laborious than consoling and required a sacrifice. It was much the same with all my devotions. They did not come easily or spontaneously, and they very seldom brought with them any strong, sensible satisfaction. Nevertheless, the work of performing them ended in a profound and fortifying peace, a peace that was scarcely perceptible, but which deepened and which, as my passion subsided, became more and more real, more and more sure, and finally stayed with me permanently. It was also at this time that I first attempted any kind of mental prayer. I had bought a copy of the Spiritual Exercises of St. Ignatius many months before, and it had remained idle on the shelf, except when I came back from Olean and took over the apartment from Seymour's wife, to whom I had sublet it. I found a couple of little pencil marks in the margin opposite pages that might be interpreted as sinister and jesuitical. One of them was about death, and the other had something to do with pulling all the blinds down when you wanted to meditate. For my own part, I had long been a little scared of the spiritual exercises, having somewhere acquired a false impression that if you did not look out, they would plunge you headfirst into mysticism before you were aware of it. How could I be sure that I would not fly up into the air as soon as I applied my mind to the first meditation? I have since found out that there is very little danger of my ever flying around the premises at mental prayer, 
The spiritual exercises are very pedestrian and practical, their chief purpose being to enable all the busy Jesuits to get their minds off their work and back to God with a minimum of wasted time. I wish I had been able to go through the exercises under the roof of some Jesuit house directed by one of their priests. However, I went about it under my own direction, studying the rules of procedure that were given in the book and following them in so far as I managed to grasp what they were all about. I never even breathed a word about what I was doing to any priest. As far as I remember, I devoted a whole month to the exercises, taking one hour each day. I took a quiet hour in the afternoon in my room on Perry Street, and since I now lived in the back of the house, there were no street noises to worry me. It was really quite silent. With the windows closed since it was winter, I could not even hear any of the neighbors' 5,000 radios. The book said that the room should be darkened, so I pulled down the blinds so that there would be just enough light left for me to see the pages and to look at the crucifix on the wall over my bed. And the book also invited me to consider what kind of a position I should take for my meditation. It left me plenty of freedom of choice, so long as I remained more or less the way I was once I had settled down and did not go about promenading around the room, scratching my head and talking to myself. So I thought and prayed a while over this momentous problem and finally decided to make my meditation sitting cross-legged on the floor. I think the Jesuits would have had a nasty shock if they had walked in and seen me doing their spiritual exercises sitting there like Mahatma Gandhi. But it worked very well, and most of the time I kept my eyes on the crucifix or on the floor when I did not have to look at the book. And so, having prayed, sitting on the floor, I began to consider the reason why God had brought me into the world. Man was created to this end, that he should praise God, our Lord, and reverence and serve him, and by doing these things should save his soul, and all the other things on the face of the earth were created for man, to help him in attaining the end for which he was created. Whence it follows that man must use these things only in so far as they help him toward his end, and must withdraw himself from them in so far as they are obstacles to his attaining his end. Wherefore it is necessary that we make ourselves indifferent to all created things, in so far as it is permitted to our free will, in such a way that, as far as we are concerned, we should not desire health rather than sickness, riches rather than poverty, honor rather than ignominy, a long life rather than a short life, and so on, desiring and choosing only those things which most efficaciously lead us to the end for which we were created. The big and simple and radical truths of the foundation were, I think, too big and too radical for me. By myself, I did not even scratch the surface of them. I vaguely remember fixing my mind on this notion of indifference to all created things in themselves, to sickness and health, and being mildly appalled. Who was I to understand such a thing? If I got a cold, I nearly choked myself with aspirin and hot lemonade and dived into bed with undisguised alarm. And here was a book that might perhaps be telling me that I ought to be able to remain as cool as an icebox in the presence of a violent death. How could I figure out just what and how much that word indifferent meant if there was no one to tell me? I did not have any way of seeing the distinction between indifference of the will and indifference of the feelings, the latter being practically a thing unknown, even in the experience of the saints. So, Worrying about this big difficulty of my own creation, 
I missed the real fruit of this fundamental meditation, which would have been an application of its notions to all things to which I myself was attached and which always tended to get me into trouble. However, the real value of the exercises for me came when I got to the various contemplations, especially the mysteries of the life of Christ. I docilely followed all St. Ignatius's rules about the composition of place and sat myself down in the holy house at Nazareth with Jesus and Mary and Joseph and considered what they did and listened to what they said and so on. And I elicited affections and made resolutions and ended with a colloquy and finally made a brief retrospective examination of how the meditation had worked out. All this was so new and interesting, and the labor of learning it engrossed me so much that I was far too busy for distractions. The most vital part of each meditation was always the application of the senses, hearing the yelling of the damned in hell, smelling their burning rottenness, seeing the devils coming at you to drag you down with the rest, and so on. As far as I remember, there was one theological point that made a very deep impression on me, greater than anything else. Somewhere in that first week, after having considered the malice of mortal sin, I had turned to the evil of venial sins. And there suddenly, while the horror of mortal sin had remained somewhat abstract to me, simply because there were so many aspects and angles to the question, I clearly saw the malice of venial sin precisely as an offense against the goodness and loving kindness of God without any respect to punishment. I left that meditation with a deep conviction of the deordination and malice there is in preferring one's own will and satisfaction to the will of God for whose love we were created. In the big meditation on the two standards, where you are supposed to line up the army of Christ in one field and the army of the devil in the other, and ask yourself, which one will you choose? I got too much of a Cecil B. DeMille atmosphere to make much out of it. But in the considerations on a choice of a state in life which followed, a strange thing happened, which scared me a little. It was the only incident that savored of externally supernatural intervention in the retreat. I had already made a choice of a state of life. I was going to be a Franciscan. Consequently, I embarked on these thoughts without too much personal concern. I was meandering around in consideration of what a man ought to do with his earthly possessions, a meditation that might have been useful to someone who really had some possessions to dispose of, when my doorbell rang. I pressed the button that opened the street door below and went to the head of the stairs, thinking that perhaps it was Gibney or somebody like that. It was, however, a little man in a mouse-colored overcoat whom I had never seen before. Are you Thomas Merton? He asked me as he arrived on my landing. I did not deny it, and he entered my room and sat down on the bed. Did you write that review of that book about D.H. Lawrence in the Times book section last Sunday? He asked me. I thought I was in for it. I had favorably reviewed a book on Lawrence by Tyndale, under whom I had done my thesis at Columbia. He had written just the kind of book that was calculated to drive all the people who made a messiah out of Lawrence clean out of their wits with pain and rage. I had already gotten an angry letter in the mail for even reviewing such a book, and I thought that now somebody had come over to shoot me if I did not recant. Yes, I said. I wrote the review. Didn't you like it? Oh, I didn't read it, said the little man. But Mr. Richardson read it, and he told me all about it. Who is Mr. Richardson? Oh, you don't know him? 
He lives in Norwalk. I was talking to him about your review only yesterday. I don't know anybody in Norwalk, I said. I couldn't figure out whether this Mr. Richardson liked the review or not and did not bother. It did not seem to have any bearing on the man's visit after all. I've been traveling around all day, he said thoughtfully. I was in Elizabeth, New Jersey, then Bayonne, New Jersey, then in Newark. Then when I was coming back on the Hudson Tube, I thought of Mr. Richardson and how he had been talking about you, and I thought I might come and see you. So there he was. He had been in Elizabeth and Bayonne and Newark, and now he was sitting in my bed with his mouse-colored overcoat and his hat in his hand. Do you live in New Jersey? I asked out of politeness. Oh, of course not. I live in Connecticut, he said quickly, but I had opened out only an avenue to further confusion. He went into intricate geographical details about where he lived and how he happened to be associated with this Mr. Richardson of Norwalk, and then he said, when I saw the ad in the paper, I decided to go over to New Jersey. The ad? Yes, the ad about the job I was looking for in Elizabeth and didn't get. And now I haven't even enough money to get back to Connecticut. I finally began to see what this was all about. The visitor was stumbling around in a long, earnest, and infinitely complicated account of all the jobs he had failed to get in New Jersey. And I, with a strange awe and excitement, began to think two things. How much money have I got to give him? And how did he happen to walk in here just when I was in the middle of that meditation about giving all your goods to the poor? The possibility that he might even be an angel disguised in that mouse-colored coat struck me with a force that was all the more affecting because it was so obviously absurd. And yet the more I think about it now, the more I am convinced of the propriety of God sending me an angel with instructions to try and fool me by talking like a character in one of those confusing short stories that get printed in the New Yorker. Anyway, I reached into my pockets and started emptying them, putting quarters and pennies and nickels on the desk. Of course, if the man was an angel, then the whole affair was nothing but a setup, and I should give him everything I had on me and go without supper. Two things restrained me. First, the desire of supper, and second, the fact that the stranger seemed to be aware that I was somewhat moved with secret thoughts and apparently interpreted them as annoyance. Anyway, figuring that I was in some way upset, he showed himself to be in a hurry to take the little I had already collected for him as if that were plenty. He hastened away, stuffing a dollar bill and the change into his pockets and leaving me in such a state of bewilderment that I positively could not sit down cross-legged and continue the meditation. I was still wondering if I should not run down the street after him and give him the other dollar which I still had. But still, applying St. Ignatius's standard to the present circumstances, I had done fairly well. I had given him about three-fifths of my liquid capital. Perhaps in a way it is better that I didn't give him everything and go without supper. I would have preened myself with such consummate and disgusting vanity, assuming I did not die of fear and call up one of my friends to lend me something, that there would have been no merit in it at all. For all that, even if his story was disconnected and very silly, and even if he was not an angel, he was much more than that if you apply Christ's own standard about whatsoever you have done to the least of his little ones. Anyway, it certainly did put some point into that meditation. Part 3 That was also the season in which three nights a week I taught a class in English composition in one of the rooms in the School of Business at Columbia. Like all extension classes, it was a mixture of all flesh. There was a tough and bad-tempered chemist 
who was a center of potential opposition because he was taking the course under duress. It was required of all students who were following a systematic series of courses in anything at all. There was an earnest and sensitive Negro youth who sat in the front row, dressed in a neat gray suit, and peered at me intently through his glasses all the time the class was going on. There was an exchange student from the University of Rome, and there was one of those middle-aged ladies who had been taking courses like this for years and who handed in neat and punctilious themes and occupied with a serene and conscious modesty her rightful place as the star of the class. This entitled her to talk more than anybody else and ask more unpredictable questions. Once, after I had been insisting that they should stick to concrete and tangible evidence in describing places and things, an Irishman called Finnegan, who had been sitting in bewilderment and without promise in one of the back rows, suddenly blossomed out with a fecundity in minute and irrelevant material detail that it was impossible to check. He began handing in descriptions of shoe factories that made you feel as if you were being buried under 50 tons of machinery. And I learned with wonder and fear that teachers have a mysterious and deadly power of letting loose psychological forces in the minds of the young. The rapidity, the happy enthusiasm with which they responded to hints and suggestions, but with the wrong response, was enough to make a man run away and live in the woods. But I liked teaching very much, especially teaching this kind of class in which most of the students had to work for a living and valued their courses because they had to pay for them out of their own savings. Teaching people like that is very flattering. The class is always so eager to get anything you have to give them, and the mere fact that they want so much is liable to give you the impression that you are capable of giving them all they want. For my part, I was left more or less free to go ahead and teach them according to my own ideas. Now, if people are going to write, they must first of all have something to write about. And if a man starts out to teach English composition, he implicitly obliges himself to teach the students how to get enough interest in things to write about them. But it is also impossible for people to learn to write unless they also read. And so a course of composition, if it is not accompanied somewhere along the line by a course in literature, should also take a little time to teach people how to read, or at least how to get interested in a book. I spent most of the time throwing out ideas about what might or might not be important in life and in literature, and letting them argue about it. The arguments got better when they also included discussions of the students' favorite ideas, as expressed on paper. It soon turned out that although they did not all have ideas, they all had a definite hunger for ideas and for convictions, from the young man who wrote a theme about how happy he had been one summer when he had had a job painting a church, to the quiet Catholic housewife who sat in one of the middle rows viewing me with a reassuring smile and an air of friendly complicity whenever the discussion got around near the borders of religion. So it was a very lively class on the whole. But it was only to last a term. And when January came around, they told me down in the office that they were going to give me a class in straight, unalleviated grammar in the spring session. Now, grammar was something I knew absolutely nothing about, and only the most constant vigilance had kept it out of sight in the composition class. Besides, since I was entering the monastery in the summer, I assured myself that I ought to take a last vacation, and I was already leafing through books about Mexico and Cuba, trying to decide where I would spend the money that I was no longer going to need to support myself in the world. 
I told the heads of my department that I could not teach grammar in the spring because I wanted to prepare myself for life in the cloister. They asked me what made me want to do such a thing as that and sadly shook their heads and did not try to argue me out of it. They told me I should come back if I changed my mind and it almost sounded as if they were saying, we'll take you back when you've been disillusioned and given up on this fantastic notion as a bad job. Since I had some money coming to me from the university in my grant in aid, I signed up for two courses in the spring. One of them was a seminar on St. Thomas with Dan Walsh, which ended up with two of us sitting and reading the De Ent et Essentia with Dan in his room in a house run by an old lady who had made a kind of career for herself by harboring the New York Giants under her roof in the baseball season. While I was still wondering whether I could afford to go to Mexico or only to Cuba, Lent came into sight, and so I put it off until after Lent. And then one day, when I was working in the library, I suddenly began to get pains in my stomach and to feel weak and sick. I put away my books and went to see a doctor who put me on a table and poked me in the stomach and said without hesitation, Yes, you've got it. Appendicitis? Yes, you'd better have that thing out right away? Well, you might as well. What's the use of waiting? You would only get into trouble with it. And immediately he called up the hospital. I walked down the brownstone stairs of the doctor's house, thinking that it would be nice in the hospital with nuns to look after me, but at the same time I was already having visions of mishaps, fatal accidents, slips of the knife that would land me in the grave. I made a lot of prayers to Our Lady of Lourdes and went home to Perry Street to get a toothbrush and a copy of Dante's Paradiso. And so I started back uptown. In the 14th Street subway station, there was a drunk, and he was really drunk. He was lying prostrate in the middle of the turnstiles in everybody's way. Several people pushed him and told him to get up and get out of there, but he could not even get himself up to his feet. And I thought to myself, if I try to lift him out of there, my appendix will burst, and I too will be lying there in the turnstiles along with him. With my nervousness tempered by a nice, warm feeling of smugness and self-complacency, I took the drunk by the shoulders and laboriously hauled him backwards out of the turnstiles and propped him against the wall. He groaned feebly in protest. Then, mentally congratulating myself for my great solicitude and charity toward drunks, I entered the turnstile and went down to take the train to the hospital on Washington Heights. As I looked back over my shoulder from the bottom of the stairs, I could see the drunk slowly and painfully crawling back towards the turnstile where he once again flung himself down, prostrate, across the opening and blocked the passage as he had done before. It was night when I got out of the station uptown and started to climb scores of monumental steps to the top of the bluff where St. Elizabeth's Hospital was. Ice was shining in the branches of the trees and here and there bright icicles would break off and fall and shatter in the street. I climbed the steps to the hospital and entered the clean, shiny hall and saw a crucifix and a Franciscan nun, all in white, and a statue of the Sacred Heart. I was very sick when I came out of the ether, and I filled myself full of swords by taking a clandestine drink of water before I should have done so. But one of the nuns who was on night duty brought me a glass of what tasted like and turned out to be anisette. It braced me up considerably. After that, when I could eat again, I began to sit up and read Dante in bed, and the rest of the ten days were indeed a paradise. 
Every morning early, after I had brushed my teeth and the nurse had fixed my bed, I would lie quiet in happy expectancy for the sound of the little bell coming down the hall, which meant communion. I could count the doors the priest entered as he stopped in the different rooms and wards. Then, with the nuns kneeling in the door, he came to my bedside with the ciborium. Corpus Domini, Nostri Jesu Christi, custodiat animum tuum in vitam eternum. And he was gone. You could hear the bell disappear down the corridor. Under the sheet, my hands folded quietly with my rosary between my fingers. It was the rosary John Paul had given me for Christmas. Since he did not know the difference between one rosary and another, he had let himself be cheated in some pious store and bought some beads that looked good, but which fell to pieces in six months. It was the kind of rosary that was meant to be looked at rather than used, but the affection which it represented was as strong as the rosary itself was weak, and so while the beads held together, I used them in preference to the strong, cheap, black wooden beads made for workmen and old Irish washwomen which I had bought for 25 cents in the basement of Corpus Christi during the mission. "'You go to communion every day?' asked the Italian in the next bed, he had got himself full of pneumonia, shoveling snow all night for the WPA. Yes, I'm going to be a priest. You see this book? I said to him later in the day. That's Dante's Paradiso. Dante, he said, an Italian. And he lay in the bed with his eyes staring at the ceiling and said nothing more. This lying in bed and being fed, so to speak, with a spoon was more than luxury. It was also full of meaning. I could not realize it at the time, and I did not need to, but a couple of years later I saw that this all expressed my spiritual life as it was then, for I was now at last born, but I was still only newborn. I was living. I had an interior life, real but feeble and precarious, and I still nursed and fed with spiritual milk. The life of grace had at last, it seemed, become constant, permanent. Weak and without strength as I was, I was nevertheless walking in the way that was liberty and life. I had found my spiritual freedom. My eyes were beginning to open to the powerful and constant light of heaven, and my will was at last learning to give in to the subtle and the gentle and loving guidance of that love which is life without end. For once, for the first time in my life, I had been not days, not weeks, but months a stranger to sin, and so much health was so new to me that it might have been too much for me. And therefore I was being fed not only with the rational milk of every possible spiritual consolation, but it seemed that there was no benefit, no comfort, no innocent happiness, even in the material order that could be denied me. So I was all at once surrounded with everything that could protect me against trouble, against savagery, against suffering. Of course, while I was in the hospital, there was some physical pains, some very small inconveniences, but on the whole, everybody who has had an ordinary appendix operation knows that it is really only a picnic, and it was certainly that for me. I finished the whole of Paradiso in Italian and read part of Maritain's preface to metaphysics. After ten days, I got out and went to Douglaston, to the house where my uncle and aunt still lived and where they invited me to rest until I was on my feet again. So that meant two more weeks of quiet and undisturbed reading. 
I could shut myself up in the room that had once been Pop's den and make meditations and pray, as I did, for instance, on the afternoon of Good Friday. And for the rest, my aunt was willing to talk all day about the Redemptorists, whose monastery had been just down the road when she had been a little girl in Brooklyn. Finally, in the middle of Easter week, I went to my doctor, and he ripped off the bandages and said it was all right for me to go to Cuba. I think it was in that bright island that the kindness and solicitude that surrounded me wherever I turned my weak steps reached their ultimate limit. It would be hard to believe that anyone was so well taken care of as I was. No one has ever seen an earthly child guarded so closely and so efficiently, and cherished and guided and watched and led with so much attention and preventive care as surrounded me in those days. For I walked through fires and put my head into the mouths of such lions as would bring gray hairs even to the head of a moral theologian. And all the while I was walking in my new simplicity and hardly knew what it was all about, so solicitous were my surrounding angels to whisk the scandals out from the path under my feet and to put pillows under my knees wherever I seemed to stumble. I don't believe that a saint who had been elevated to the state of mystical marriage could walk through the perilous streets and dives of Havana with notably less contamination than I seem to have contracted. And yet this absence of trouble, this apparent immunity from passion or from accident, was something that I calmly took for granted. God was giving me a taste of that sense of proprietorship to which grace gives a sort of right in the hearts of all his children. For all things are theirs, and they are Christ's, and Christ is God's. They own the world because they have renounced proprietorship of anything in the world and of their own bodies, and have ceased to listen to the unjust claims of passion. Of course, with me, there was no question of any real detachment. If I did not listen to my passions, it was because, in the merciful dispensation of God, they had ceased to make any noise for the time being. They did wake up momentarily, but only when I was well out of harm's way in a very dull and sleepy city called Kamigway, where practically everybody was in bed by nine o'clock at night, and where I tried to read St. Teresa's autobiography in Spanish under the big royal palms in a huge garden which I had all to myself. I told myself that the reason why I had come to Cuba was to make a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Cobre, and I did, in fact, make a kind of a pilgrimage, but it was one of those medieval pilgrimages that was nine-tenths vacation and one-tenth pilgrimage. God tolerated all this and accepted the pilgrimage on the best terms in which it could be interpreted, because he certainly beset me with graces all the way around Cuba, graces of the kind that even a person without deep spirituality can appreciate his graces. And that is the kind of person I was then and still am. Every step I took opened up a new world of joys, spiritual joys and joys of the mind and imagination and senses in the natural order, but on the plane of innocence and under the direction of grace. There was a partial natural explanation for this. I was learning a thing that could not be completely learned except in a culture that is at least outwardly Catholic. One needs the atmosphere of French or Spanish or Italian Catholicism before there is any possibility of a complete and total experience of all the natural and sensible joys that overflow from the sacramental life. But here, at every turn, I found my way into great, cool, dark churches, 
some of them with splendid altars, shining with carven retables or rich with mahogany and silver, and wonderful red gardens of flame flowered before the saints or the blessed sacrament. Here in niches were those lovely dressed-up images, those little carved virgins full of miracles and pathos, and clad in silks and black velvet, throned above the high altars. Here, inside chapels, were those pietas, fraught with fierce Spanish drama, with thorns and nails whose very sight pierced the mind and heart. All around the church were many altars to white and black saints, and everywhere were Cubans in prayer, for it is not true that the Cubans neglect their religion, or not as true as Americans complacently think, basing their judgments on the lives of the rich, sallow young men who come north from the island and spend their days in arduous gambling in the dormitories of Jesuit colleges. But I was living like a prince on that island, like a spiritual millionaire, every morning getting up at about seven or half past and walking out into the warm, sunny street. I could find my way quickly to any one of a dozen churches, new churches, or as old as the 17th century. Almost as soon as I went in the door, I could receive communion if I wished, for the priest came out with a ciborium loaded with hosts before Mass, during it and after, and every 15 or 20 minutes a new Mass was starting at a different altar. These were the churches of religious orders, Carmelites, Franciscans, the American Augustinians at El Santo Cristo, or the Fathers of Mercy. Everywhere I turned, there was someone ready to feed me with the infinite strength of the Christ who loved me and who was beginning to show me with an immense and subtle generous lavishness how much he loved me. And there were a thousand things to do, a thousand ways of easily making a thanksgiving. Everything lent itself to communion. I could hear another mass. I could say the rosary to the stations of the cross. Or if I just knelt where I was, Everywhere I turned my eyes, I saw saints in wood or plaster, or those who seemed to be saints in flesh and blood. Even those who were probably not saints were new enough and picturesque enough to stimulate my mind with many meanings and my heart with prayers. And as I left the church, there was no lack of beggars to give me the opportunity of almsgiving, which is an easy and simple way of wiping out sins. Often I left one church and went to hear another mass in another church, especially if the day happened to be Sunday, and I would listen to the harmonious sermons of the Spanish priests, the very grammar of which was full of dignity and mysticism and courtesy. After Latin, it seemed to me there is no language so fitting for prayer and for talk about God as Spanish, for it is a language at once strong and supple. It has its sharpness. It has the quality of steel in it, which gives it the accuracy that true mysticism needs, and yet it is soft, too, and gentle and pliant, which devotion needs, and it is courteous and supple and courtly, and it lends itself surprisingly little to sentimentality. It has some of the intellectuality of French, but not the coldness that intellectuality gets in French, and it never overflows into the feminine melodies of Italian. Spanish is never a weak language, never sloppy, even on the lips of a woman. The fact that while all this was going on in the pulpit, there would be Cubans ringing bells and yelling lottery numbers outside in the streets seemed to make no difference. For a people that is supposed to be excitable, 
the Cubans have a phenomenal amount of patience with all the things that get on American nerves and drive people crazy, like persistent and strident noise. But for my own part, I did not mind any of that any more than the natives did. When I was sated with prayers, I could go back into the streets, walking among the lights and shadows, stopping to drink huge glasses of iced fruit juices in the little bars, until I came home again and read Maritain or St. Teresa, until it was time for lunch. And so I made my way to Montanzas and Comagüe and Santiago, riding in a wild bus through the olive-gray Cuban countryside full of sugarcane fields. All the way I said rosaries and looked out into the great solitary ciba trees, half expecting that the Mother of God would appear to me in one of them. There seemed to be no reason why she should not, for all things in heaven were just a little out of reach. So I kept looking, looking, and half expecting, but I did not see Our Lady appear, beautiful in any of the ciba trees. At Matanzas, I got mixed up in the paseo where the whole town walks around and around the square in the evening coolness, the men in one direction and the girls in the other direction, and immediately I made friends with about 51 different people of all ages. The evening ended with me making a big speech in broken Spanish, surrounded by men and boys in a motley crowd that included the town reds and the town intellectuals and the graduates in the Marist Fathers School and some law students from the University of Havana. It was all about faith and morals and made a big impression, and in return their acceptance of it made a big impression on me, for many of them were glad that someone, a foreigner, should come and talk about these things. And I heard someone who had just arrived in the crowd say, Es católico? Es americano? Man, said the other, he is a Catholic and a very good Catholic. And the tone in which he said this made me so happy that when I went to bed, I could not sleep. I lay in the bed and looked up through the mosquito netting at the bright stars that shone in upon me through the wide-open window that had no glass and no frame, but only a heavy wooden shutter against the rain. In Camagüe, I found a church to La Soledad, Our Lady of Solitude, a little dressed-up image in a shadowy niche. You could hardly see her. La Soledad, one of my big devotions, and you never find her, never hear anything about her in this country, except that one of the old California missions was dedicated to her. Finally, my bus went roaring across the dry plain toward the blue wall of the mountains, Oriente, the end of my pilgrimage. When we had crossed over the divide and were going down through the green valleys toward the Caribbean Sea, I saw the yellow basilica of Our Lady of Cobre, standing on a rise above the tin roofs of the mining village in the depths of a deep bowl of green, backed by cliffs and sheer slopes robed in jungle. There you are, Caridad del Cobre. It is you that I have come to see. You will ask Christ to make me his priest, and I will give you my heart, lady, and if you will obtain for me this priesthood, I will remember you at my first Mass in such a way that the Mass will be for you and offer through your hands in gratitude to the Holy Trinity, who has used your love to win me this great grace. The bus tore down the mountainside to Santiago. The mining engineer who had got on at the top of the divide was talking all the way down in English he had learned in New York, telling me of the graft that had enriched the politicians of Cuba and of Oriente. 
In Santiago, I ate dinner on the terrace of a big hotel in front of the cathedral. Across the square was the shell of a five-story building that looked as if it had been gutted by a bomb. But the ruin had happened in an earthquake not so very long before. It was long enough ago so that the posters on the fence that had been put up in front of it had time to get tattered. And I was thinking, perhaps, it was now getting to be the time for another earthquake. And I looked up at the two towers of the cathedral, ready to sway and come booming down on my head. The bus that took me to Cobre the next morning was the most dangerous of all the furious buses that are the terror of Cuba. I think it made most of the journey at 80 miles an hour on two wheels, and several times I thought it was going to explode. I said rosaries all the way up to the shrine while the trees went by in a big greenish-yellow blur. If Our Lady had tried to appear to me, I probably would never even have gotten a glimpse of her. I walked up the path that wound around the mound on which the basilica stands. Entering the door, I was surprised that the floor was so shiny and the place so clean. I was in the back of the church, up in the apse, in a kind of oratory behind the high altar, and there facing me in a little shrine was La Caridad, the little cheerful black virgin, crowned with a crown and dressed in royal robes, who is the queen of Cuba. There was nobody else in the place but a pious middle-aged lady attendant in a black dress who was eager to sell me a lot of medals, and so I knelt before La Caridad and made my prayer and made my promise. I sneaked down into the basilica after that and knelt where I could see La Caridad and where I could really be alone and pray, but the pious lady, impatient to make her deal or perhaps afraid I might get up to some mischief in the basilica, came down and peeked through the door. So, disappointed and resigned, I got up and came out and bought a medal and got some change for the beggars and went away without having a chance to say all that I wanted to say to La Caridad or to hear much from her. Down in the village, I bought a bottle of some kind of gaseosa and stood under the tin roof of the porch of the village store. Somewhere in one of the shacks on a harmonium was played Kyrie Eleison, Kyrie Eleison, Kyrie Eleison. And I went back to Santiago. But while I was sitting on the terrace of the hotel eating lunch, La Caridad del Cobre had a word to say to me. She handed me an idea for a poem that formed so easily and smoothly and spontaneously in my mind that all I had to do was finish eating and go up to my room and type it out, almost without a correction. So the poem turned out to be both what she had to say to me and what I had to say to her. It was a song for La Caridad del Cobre, and it was, as far as I was concerned, something new and the first real poem I had ever written, or anyway, the one I liked best. It pointed the way to many other poems and opened the gate and set me traveling on a certain and direct track that was to last me several years. The poem said this, The white girls lift their heads like trees. The black girls go reflected like flamingos in the street. The white girls sing as shrill as water. The black girls talk as quiet as clay. The white girls open their arms like clouds. The black girls close their eyes like wings. Angels bow down like bells. Angels look up like toys. Because the heavenly stars stand in a ring, and all the pieces of the mosaic earth get up and fly away like birds.
When I went back to Havana, I found out something else, too, something vastly more important. It was something that made me realize, all of a sudden, not merely intellectually, but experientially, the real uselessness of what I had been half-deliberately looking for, the visions in the Siba trees. And this experience opened another door, not a way to a kind of writing, but a way into a world infinitely new, a world that was out of this world of ours entirely and which transcended it infinitely, and which was not a world, but which was God himself. I was in the church of St. Francis of Havana. It was a Sunday. I had been to the communion at some other church, I think at El Cristo, and I had come here to hear another Mass. The building was crowded. Up in front, before the altar, there were rows and rows of children crowded together. I forget whether they were first communicants or not, but they were children around that age. I was far in the back of the church, but I could see the heads of all those children. It came time for the consecration. The priest raised the host, then raised the chalice. When he put the chalice down on the altar, suddenly a friar in his brown robe and white cord stood up in front of the children, and all at once the voices of the children burst out, Creo en Dios. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. The Creed. But that cry, Creo en Dios, it was loud and bright and sudden and glad and triumphant. It was a big, good shout that came from all those Cuban children, a joyous affirmation of faith. Then, as sudden as the shout, and a thousand times more bright, there formed in my mind an awareness, an understanding, a realization of what had just taken place on the altar at the consecration, a realization of God made present by the words of the consecration in a way that made him belong to me. But what a thing it was, that awareness. It was so intangible, and yet it struck me like a thunderclap. It was a light that was so bright that it had no relation to any visible light, and so profound and so intimate that it seemed like a neutralization of every lesser experience. And yet the thing that struck me most of all was that this light was in a certain sense ordinary. It was a light, and this most of all took my breath away, that was offered to all, to everybody, and there was nothing fancy or strange about it. It was the light of faith, deepened and reduced to an extreme and sudden obviousness. It was as if I had suddenly been illuminated by being blinded by the manifestation of God's presence. The reason why this light was blinding and neutralizing was that there was and could be simply nothing in it of sense or imagination. When I call it a light, that is a metaphor which I'm using long after the fact. But at the moment, another overwhelming thing about this awareness was that it disarmed all images, all metaphors, and cut through the whole skein of species and phantasms with which we naturally do our thinking. It ignored all sense experience in order to strike directly at the heart of truth, as if a sudden and immediate contact had been established between my intellect and the truth who was now physically, really, and substantially before me on the altar. But this contact was not something speculative and abstract. It was concrete and experiential and belonged to the order of knowledge, yes, but more still to the order of love. Another thing about it was that this light was something far above and beyond 
the level of any desire or any appetite I had ever been aware of. It was purified of all emotion and cleansed of everything that savored of sensible yearnings. It was love as clean and direct as vision, and it flew straight to the possession of the love it loved. And the first articulate thought that came to my mind was, heaven is right here in front of me. Heaven. Heaven. It lasted only a moment, but it left a breathless joy and a clean peace and happiness that stayed for hours, and it was something I have never forgotten. The strange thing about this light was that although it seemed so ordinary in the sense I have mentioned and so accessible, there was no way of recapturing it. In fact, I did not even know how to start trying to reconstruct that experience or bring it back if I wanted to, except to make acts of faith and love. But it was easy to see that there was nothing I could do to give any act of faith that peculiar quality of sudden obviousness. This was a gift. It was a gift and had to come from somewhere else, above and beyond myself. However, let no one think that just because of this light that came to me one day at Mass in the Church of St. Francis at Havana, I was in the habit of understanding things that cleanly, or that I was far advanced in prayer. No, my prayer continued to be largely vocal, and the mental prayer I made was not systematic, but the more or less spontaneous meditating and effective prayer that came and went according to my reading here and there. And most of the time, my prayer was not so much prayer as a matter of anticipating, with hope and desire, my entrance into the Franciscan novitiate, and a certain amount of imagining what it was going to be like, so that often I was not praying at all, but only daydreaming.